We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Away we go, episode 85 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Don Warren episode of the pod. It is Wednesday, June 16th, 2021, the day after we learned of a major honor for Bradley Beal, all NBA third team. It's not often that we have this, a wizard making an all NBA team, and yet we had that on Tuesday night when we also had the continuation of the second round of the NBA playoffs. I would much rather be discussing the Wizards being in the NBA playoffs than talking about the Wizards winning an honor. Although you could have both, right? You could have had Beal making all NBA third team and also Beal leading the Wizards in a game in the second round of the NBA playoffs. We did have the former. We did not have the latter. We did, though, have on Tuesday night an epic performance by Kevin Durant. When's the next time we'll be able to say that about someone on the Wizards? An epic performance in the playoffs. Someday soon, I hope, I will always hope, I will never not be a Wizards fan, but Durant was phenomenal on Tuesday night. A 114-108 Brooklyn Nets win over the Milwaukee Bucks to take a 3-2 lead in that Eastern Conference semifinal series. 49 points, 17 rebounds, 10 assists, versus three turnovers, three steals, 
and two blocks. James Harden went 0 for 8 on threes. Kyrie Irving didn't play. But Kevin Durant, the pride of Montrose Christian School in Rockville, Maryland, the man who wouldn't even take a meeting with the Wizards in the 2016 offseason, never forget that, that guy carried his team to a win on Tuesday night. What a performance. He was the Bucks' daddy. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yeah, and I tell you who else was the Bucks daddy on Tuesday night. Another guy with local ties, the Georgetown product, Jeff Green, seven for eight on threes off the bench. How about Jeff Green? The Bucks had two daddies, my two dads on Tuesday night. Well, I will discuss Bradley Beal making all NBA third team next segment, including the implications of that. There is a reality, my friends, this Wizards offseason that now is even more undeniable. Special guest on the show, you're going to like this, Brandon Thorne, the author of the Trench Warfare newsletter. Few people analyze defensive line and offensive line play as well as Thorne does. You're going to hear him talk about a bunch of linemen on the Washington football team. Jonathan Allen, Matt Ioannidis, Duran Payne, Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Brandon Sheriff, Charles Leno Jr., Samuel Cosme, a true deep dive into line play for the Washington football team. Thorne knows his stuff. He has opinions on these people. So prepare yourself. Brandon Thorne on Washington's defensive and offensive linemen coming up in just a bit. For one of the few times this baseball season, we had an easy breezy Nationals win, an 8-1 no doubter over the Pittsburgh Pirates on Tuesday night. As for one of the few times this baseball season, we had a good start from Patrick Corbin. In fact, we had a great start from Patrick Corbin. And for one of the few times this baseball season, we had the Nats scoring a bunch of runs early, a five-run first inning. This was a rare night on Tuesday night. I'll talk about it coming up. I'll also give you my thoughts on the big news in Major League Baseball on Tuesday, the crackdown on pitchers using foreign substances. Boy, MLB is the king of being late to the party. Pitchers have been using foreign substances forever. Now, all of a sudden, MLB decides to crack down on this. This is exactly what happened with performance-enhancing drugs. I'll also discuss another road loss for the Orioles off another bad outing for Matt Harvey, a 7-2 loss at the Cleveland Indians on Tuesday night as the Orioles' franchise record road losing streak now at 17 games. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Tom regarding the MLB foreign substance issue. I have a suggestion for the MLB issue with the baseballs. Why not modify the specs for the ball manufacturers that will require an approved level of a substance to provide a grip? This current situation is going to be difficult to police. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's going to be very difficult to police especially if MLB only has it so that the rosin bag is the only thing that pitchers can use because you know pitchers are going to want to use more. You could argue pitchers and the game of baseball are better off if the pitchers can use something more. So why not come up with some universal substance and then nobody has any excuses, okay? You figure out what makes sense, what isn't going to doctor baseballs too much, but is going to allow for proper grips of baseballs and you go from there. Uh, and this is another mess that Major League Baseball has 
on its hands. Well, if you have a mess when it comes to trying to sell your home, you need not worry. The cleaner, you could say, is one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker. You remember the cleaner in the movie Pulp Fiction, Winston Wolf? He solves problems. That's John Grandland. He solves problems, at least problems when it comes to selling your home. The kinds of problems that Winston Wolf addressed, I'm not sure if that's really John Grandland's territory or not. But I do know this. If you need to sell your home and you aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, a.k.a. John G. And understand, whereas our guy Ron Rivera loves his position flex, John Grandland loves his commission flex. Position flex. Yes, exactly. Ron, you have position flex. John G. has commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Not every home requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? There has been an inflexibility forever when it comes to real estate agents. You know, you got to pay 6%. And it doesn't matter how difficult or easy it is to sell the home. John Grandlin is doing away with that. John Grandlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including, get this, selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin to sell your home guaranteed. Yes, you heard that right. Guaranteed. He guarantees the sale of your home. The phone number is 703-537-6747. Do yourself a favor. Call that number. Tell John Grandlin you want to know more about what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, The Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747. You have nothing to lose. John Granlin's a great guy, easygoing, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan as well. You can also check him out online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Granlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. That's right, Ron. Just like Position Flex. All right, so big news for the Wizards on Tuesday night. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team, Bradley Beal, made an all-NBA team for the first time in his career. He made the all-NBA third team, a tremendous achievement. Look, I could not care less about all-star appearances. I do, though, care very much about all NBA selections. Those matter. You make all NBA, you matter. And Beal very much matters. Beal had more total points in terms of votes than the other guard on the all NBA third team, Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets. The all NBA first team guards were the Golden State Warriors, Steph Curry, and the Dallas Mavericks, Luka Doncic. The all NBA second team guards were the Portland Trailblazers, Damian Lillard, and the Phoenix Suns, 
Chris Paul. So that's the company that Beal was in with this honor on Tuesday night. Curry, Doncic, Lillard, Paul, Kyrie, and Beal. Uh, Beal is the first Wizards player to make an All-NBA team since John Wall made the All-NBA third team for the 2016-2017 regular season. Get this, the only other Wizards player to make an All-NBA team since the turn of the century, Gilbert Arenas, who actually made an All-NBA team in each of three consecutive seasons. Gil was All-NBA third team for the 2004-2005 regular season, All-NBA third team for the 2005-2006 regular season, and then All-NBA second team for the 2006-2007 regular season. That does make you appreciate Gil, right? That he made All-NBA in each of three consecutive years, but that's it. Since the turn of the century, Gil, Wall, and Beal, the only Wizards to make all NBA teams, just to give you an idea of why our team has been as it has been. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, exactly. In case you're curious, Russell Westbrook did not make an all NBA team on Tuesday night. He did, though, receive the most votes of any guard who did not make an all NBA team and had the second most votes of any player who did not make an all NBA team. It was dicey whether Beal or Westbrook would make an all NBA team. I mean, look, with Beal, he certainly has blossomed as a scorer over the last two seasons. Beal, this past regular season, number two in the NBA in points per game at 31.3, just as Beal in the 2019 2020 regular season was number two in the NBA in points per game at 30.5. Beal, of course, had some monster performances this past season. January 6th, he scored a single-game franchise record tying at 60 points. But what was funny about that performance, just like what was funny about so many other big-time scoring performances by Beal over these last few seasons, is that the Wizards lost that game. That game on January 6th was a 141-136 Wizards loss at the Philadelphia 76ers. In fact, Beal in the Wizards 131-122 win over the NBA-leading Utah Jazz at Capital One Arena on March 18th had 43 points. The Wizards winning that game snapped Beal's 11-game losing streak in games in which he scored at least 40 points. That had been the longest such losing streak in NBA history. So yeah, Beal's been scoring a bunch these last few seasons, but the increased scoring hasn't necessarily led to increase winning, and Beal is far from a perfect player. And to his credit, he admits this, right? He talked about this after the Game 5 loss at the Philadelphia 76ers that ended the Wizards' season in the first round of the 2021 NBA playoffs. But like you look at Bradley Beal, his three-point shooting has plummeted in recent seasons. That's what's ironic about this rise of Beal as a scorer. As his scoring has gone up, his three-point shooting has gone down. Beal over his first six regular seasons was a 39.3% shooter on threes. That's pretty good. But Beal over the last three regular seasons, 35.1% on threes, including a career worst 34.9% on threes, this past regular season. Also, Beal can be sloppy with the basketball. His two worst turnovers per 100 possessions numbers per basketball reference have come over the last two regular seasons. This past regular season, 4.0 turnovers per 100 possessions. The 2019-2020 regular season, 4.4 turnovers per 100 possessions. And note, I'm not going by turnovers per game because that can be impacted by your team having more possessions. And we know that the Wizards have many possessions because they play at such a fast pace. Turnovers per 100 possessions normalizes things in a better way because it adjusts for pace. And Beal, sure enough, 
is committing many more turnovers these last two seasons in terms of turnovers per 100 possessions. Beal has been a part of the Wizards having been mostly woeful on defense for years. Now, Beal himself is not necessarily a woeful defender, but I would call him an inconsistent defender. You know, he can be good. He can also be not so good. And, you know, Beal as a superstar has not done a very good job of getting his teammates to play defense. So much of playing defense in basketball is effort. If you're a true alpha, if you're a true superstar, you can get your teammates to be better on defense, to be more committed to being good defensively. Beal has not done that over the years. And if you look at Beal through the prism of some of the advanced stats out there, uh, they're not very kind to him. Like this past regular season, Bradley Beal was just 42nd in the NBA in ESPN's real plus minus wins at 8.09. He was just 55th in the NBA in basketball references win shares for 48 minutes at .132. So all of this is just to say that Bradley Beal is a very good player, but he's not an elite player. He's an elite scorer, yes, but he's not an elite player. Like, I would not say he's a top 10 player in the NBA. Um, I don't know necessarily that he's even a top 20 player in the NBA. You know, you'd have to really sit down and do the work. He's top 30, yes, probably top 25, and he may well be top 20. I'd have to really sit and think about it, but it's not a slam dunk. And top 10, no, I would not say that he's a top 10 player. You look at Russell Westbrook, no doubt, all of the triple doubles this past season. I mean, the Wizards slash Bullets franchise record for career regular season triple doubles had been Daryl Walker's 15. Westbrook, this past regular season alone, single season and career franchise records with his 38 triple doubles. He, of course, became the NBA's all-time leader in career regular season triple doubles with 184. He ended up averaging a triple-double in a regular season for the fourth time in his career. I mean, just to put that into context, Oscar Robertson had been the only other player to average a triple-double for a regular season, and he only did this once. Westbrook now has done this four times. He finished the regular season number one in the NBA in assists per game at 11.74, a single-season Wizards-slash-Bullets record, and Westbrook averaged a career-best 11.54 rebounds this past regular season. So there was a lot to like about Westbrook's season for sure, and he obviously came on as the season went on, and a big reason for the Wizards going 17-6 and down the stretch of the regular season was Russell Westbrook, his tenacity, his ferocity, his competitive drive, all those things. But Russell Westbrook does remain a very inefficient player. You know, that aspect of his game did not just go bye-bye this past season. Westbrook, this past regular season, number two in the NBA among qualified players in most turnovers per 100 possessions per basketball reference at 6.1. Now, to be fair, Luka Doncic was number one among all qualified players in most turnovers per 100 possessions. So it's not necessarily the end of the world that you rate highly in that, but it's not a good thing. I mean, nobody aspires to have that. Uh, Also, Westbrook this past regular season had the 10th worst true shooting percentage among qualified players in the NBA. True shooting percentage is basically an advanced version of field goal percentage. It's a shooting percentage that considers that a three is worth more than a two and also accounts for free throws. So it's a good thing to look at. Uh, Westbrook was especially bad on free throws this past regular season. He had the second worst free throw percentage of his career at 656. But here's the bottom line with what happened on Tuesday night. Beal making all NBA third team only heightens the urgency of this Wizards offseason. And that, to me, is the takeaway from Tuesday night. It is becoming increasingly clear that the Wizards are going to retain Scott Brooks 
as head coach in an effort to keep Russell Westbrook happy and double down on this approach with Beal and Westbrook. You know, there's been some talk of the Wizards monitoring Kristaps Porzingis and the potential for him to become available from the Dallas Mavericks. That's intriguing. But as I have said, the Wizards this offseason need to pick one of two extremes. Either double down on Beal and Westbrook by adding a third major piece, and that does appear to be the path that the Wizards are going down, or trade Beal. He can opt out of his contract after next season, as can Westbrook, by the way, though that doesn't seem nearly as likely. But it's put up or shut up time for the Wizards with Beal. If they don't trade him this offseason, then they need to go all in with him for next season and make a big move because the Wizards as currently constructed aren't good enough to do anything meaningful. The Wizards can't just run it back. And to their credit, it doesn't sound like they want to just run it back and they shouldn't want to run it back. In the NBA, if you're not a top three seed in your conference, you basically have no shot at an NBA title. The only two non-top three seeds to ever win NBA titles are the four-seeded Boston Celtics in the 1968-69 season and the six-seeded Houston Rockets in the 1994-1995 season. That's it. If you're not a top three seed in your conference, you basically have no shot at an NBA title. And if you basically have no shot at an NBA title, then what exactly are we doing here? That Wizards five-game first-round series loss to the 76ers this postseason was a stiff reminder of what the Wizards are. And at best, number four to number six seed in the Eastern Conference. Yes, there were injury reasons for why the Wizards were only the eighth seed in the East, namely Westbrook having dealt with the torn left quadriceps early this past regular season. But even accounting for that, you do not have a Wizards team that realistically can compete for a top three seed in the East. What the Wizards cannot do is simply stay the course and neither take a big swing this offseason nor trade Beal. The Wizards need to pick an extreme direction and go with it. You can't lose Beal for nothing or next to nothing next offseason. He's got value. He has increased value now because he just made an all-NBA team. So if you can't add that third major piece to legitimately upgrade your team into being top three seed worthy in the East, then trade Beal and get back some assets. Get back multiple first-round picks. Get back some potential building blocks. But you can't just stay the course, okay? You got to change the course. You got to either heighten what you currently have or you got to trade Beal now, i.e. this offseason, while the guy still has substantial value. The Wizards need to pick an extreme direction and go with it. Because if they don't, they will remain on this road to nowhere. You know, best case scenario, number four to number six seed, that doesn't take you anywhere meaningful. And Beal will just opt out next offseason. Next season will be Beal's age 28 season. He has a $37.262 million player option for the 2022-2023 season. It's a little confusing, but the Wizards in October 2019 convinced Beal to sign a two-year max contract extension worth about $72 million. The extension, though, hasn't even started yet. This is one of the screwy things about the NBA, that in October 2019, you can sign a guy to an extension that hasn't even kicked in yet as of June 2021. I mean, how is that healthy for the league? I'm not really sure. But anyway, the extension kicks in beginning with this upcoming season, the 2021-2022 season. The second season of the extension, the 2022-2023 season, is a player option season. That's why, my friends, there is an extreme urgency this Wizards offseason. Well, perhaps one of the great supporters of this podcast 
Dr. George Verghese can advise the Wizards on what to do this offseason. I know he has some thoughts, but when he's not trying to help the Wizards trade for Kristaps Porzingis, Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so probably the most difficult thing to assess in football is line play. It's one thing to have an opinion on an overall offensive line or defensive line, but to actually know with conviction how each guy on a line is doing, very tricky. One of the best evaluators of offensive and defensive line play in the NFL is Brandon Thorne, the author of the Trench Warfare newsletter. He's also an analyst for Establish the Run, which is a very well-regarded NFL analytics and fantasy football outlet. You can follow Brandon on Twitter, at Brandon Thorne NFL. Brandon, it's great to talk to you, man. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, thank you for for this opportunity it's uh it's always great to talk line play and we'll get to talk about some of my favorites so excited yeah me too before we truly get going here what is your background how did you get into breaking down defensive line and offensive line play yeah so my background i just really i only played in high school i played offensive line in high school i was you know quite a bit bigger then and uh you know i was like good enough to You'll probably play like Division One AA, you know, kind of kind of ball. But I uh, decided to join the military instead. But I, I was a, just a diehard NFL fan from when I was born, pretty much raised into it, and just followed it, you know, throughout my entire life. And then after about ten years in the military, <clears throat> I had an opportunity to get out, um, and I was still, you know, young enough to kind of switch career fields, or at least I felt like I was, and I always wanted to get involved in football, so. I decided to, to get out and do it. And, uh, you know, the, the aim was to get into NFL scouting, um, which I almost was able to get into. I had an interview with the NFL team, but it kind of, you know, I, I realized I pivoted, realized I was a better fit to do it kind of on my own terms. Um, so I, I did some contract work with places like the Senior Bowl and, um, you know, different players and stuff like that that I've worked for personally and and different things and uh I mean you know I, I really got a big break when I met Ted Sundquist who was a fellow Air Force veteran a former general manager of the Broncos he was living locally in Colorado 
where I lived at the time, and he kind of took me under his wing and taught me a lot about it. And then I joined the scouting academy uh, that's ran by Dan Hatman, former NFL scout, with a lot of NFL coaches that teach you kind of what to look for. And that really helped me, you know, develop like a systematic process of how to scout players and how to write scouting reports and things like that. And um, that was this was all, you know, six, seven years ago. Um, so, you know, about five years ago, I, I you know, joined Twitter. I joined Twitter prior to that, but I really got active about five years ago. And I realized there was kind of a, you know, a vacant spot there where there was not a lot of offensive line analysis being done. So I decided to kind of hone in on that because it was probably my favorite position to watch anyway. Uh, and then through that, I was able to meet some more people that helped me, you know, and kind of develop me and my knowledge of that position, you know, the Charles Bentley and Duke Mannyweather in two um and yeah it just kept growing and uh now i'm going on you know four or five years now just exclusively studying offensive and defensive line play in the nfl some college and that's what i do for a living now and i do it through a variety of different mediums you know my own website establish the run i work to do a lot of stuff for players where i make tapes for them to prepare for opponents or just based on their highlights um and I work for, you know, I do stuff with the Offensive Line Mastermind event. This will be our fourth year. It's actually next month in Dallas. That's where about 40 or 50 uh, starters from across the league meet. And I put together all the film work for them uh, in terms of pass rushers. So I scout the pass rushers, write reports on them, and then we all get in the classroom and discuss it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool. I've been able to kind of develop this and carve out this niche, and I, I love it. I love offensive and defensive line play. I believe that the game's won, you know, from the trenches most of the time. You build inside out, all that kind of stuff. You know, some big cliche, but I, I believe a lot of it to be true. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize that there, you know, that, that there's stuff I don't know, and I'm consistently learning about it. So, um, it's great, man. I just, uh, you know, but that, that's my background kind of in a nutshell and where I am and how I got to where I am now. Good deal. And I think you're right. There has been a void that needed to be filled regarding talking defensive line and offensive line play. You have a million people who talk quarterbacks and skill position players. Not many talk line play and talk it well. You do. So the main reason I wanted to have Jan is your opinion on Jonathan Allen. I know you're a big Jonathan Allen fan. He's Entering a season in which he'll be playing under the terms of the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. A lot of talk this offseason about a potential contract extension for Allen. There actually is some debate here in the D.C. area about how good truly Allen is. I'm a big fan. I know that you're a big fan. What jumps out at you in studying John Allen? Yeah, well, I mean, at first I think it's easy to underappreciate him because when you look at stats, you know, he he doesn't really accumulate uh, sacks and things that would, you know, tend to you know, speak of a dominant or, you know, really disruptive interior presence to most people. But when you watch him on film, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, especially the last three years that he's been a full-time starter. He's only missed one game um, in that time. But I think the thing when you study him on film that stands out the most to me is, you know, his, he's obviously has the size and, you know, he's from, he went to Alabama. He's obviously, you know, has all the physical, you know, traits that you would want for the position. But to me, I think he's an absolute technician versus the run. Uh, his ability to use really precise hand placement to establish control on blockers, you know, frames and to stack them. That way he can keep his chest clear and read where the ball is and, you know, things like that. And just, he plays with so much control and play strength 
I think. Um, he's a very difficult guy to move or displace for blockers. Um, so I think initially, like three years ago, when I really became a fan of him, uh, it was for what he was doing against the run. I just thought he was outstanding. You watch him against guys uh, Dallas, you know, over that time when he was going against Travis Frederick, uh, Zach Martin. You know, those, I think, are probably two of the best guys, you know, maybe that have ever played the position. But certainly over the last five years, I think Zach Martin's the best offensive lineman in the league. You, you see some of the stuff he's done against him over the years and just other guys. Um, just across the league, uh, I'm big on watching level of competition. So, uh, you know, when you watch John Allen against certain caliber of offensive linemen and how well he's able to you know, hold the point of attack and even reset the line of scrimmage and make plays against the run, that to me was just outstanding. So that's how I always saw him. And then last year, you know, I really think he, he took it to another level in terms of what he could do as a pass rusher. Um, you know, there's there's this move that a lot of Washington defensive linemen have used over the years. I think they kind of picked it up when Jim Chinsula was there, but um, guys still use it there. And uh, it's basically like a cross chop, but then you turn it into a hump move. And it's, it's a really nice combination pass rush move. And John Allen used it last year to a level that was straight up dominant in some games. You watch him against Matt Filer, who was with the Steelers then, now with the Chargers. Uh, left guard, I mean, he absolutely just dominated him um, in that game with that one move. And then he was able, he was also moving around, playing over the center at nose, uh, making, you know, being disruptive there. Um, and, and, you know, you really got to see him last year take it to another level. So that's where I think I even, I feel even stronger about him because I know what he could do against the run, but now he's becoming that, you know, I don't want to say elite pass rusher because I don't think he's an elite player right now. I think he's elite versus the run, but I think as a pass rusher, he's like very good. And if you have an elite guy versus the run and a very good pass rusher, I mean, that's that's a very, very valuable player uh, on the interior of a defensive line who could play in different alignments as well. So, yeah, I think the, the arrow is still pointing up with him based on what we saw last year. I love the name of that move, the cross chop hump. Very unique, but clearly very effective. When it comes to Washington's top three interior defensive linemen, John Allen, Deron Payne, Matt Ioannidis, is Allen the best of the bunch? I believe so, yeah. Um, I mean, Matt Ioannidis, to me, would probably be the second best. Uh, you know, I think he's, you know, I mean, Ioannidis, you know, I think him and Allen, it's funny, like, they, they have two guys that are honestly two of the most underrated interior defensive linemen in the NFL. Um, and Ioannidis, you know, I haven't watched him as closely as Allen, but I've seen a lot of Ioannidis play. And what he could do as a pass rusher, I think, is is pretty special uh, for, for, for a guy, you know, that I don't think has the physical traits necessarily in terms of height, weight, length um, that, that a guy like John Allen does. But, I mean, he's very crafty with his hands. He's very good about swatting hands and, and knocking hands down and creating short corners. And he also has some power to his game as well. Um, he, he's a he's a very good player as well. You know, it was a shame we didn't get to see him uh, last year, but um, I'm very excited to see how he rebounds this year. Um, so to me, I, I think both of them, especially Allen last year, and then Ioannidis in general, I think they offer a little bit more than Deron Payne does as a pass rusher. Um, Deron Payne, 
I, I, you know, I think you could make the case that he might have just sheer like athletic gifts that are better than both of those guys. Cause you see flashes from Kane where the explosiveness and his size and the power is just overwhelmingly, you know, there it's just it pops off the screen, but I don't think he's as consistent with his technique anywhere near Allen. In my opinion, um, it's more so he's just like a, you know, a raw physical freak who can do some special stuff, but he doesn't string it together, you know, from a skill technique perspective like Allen and Ioannidis do. Um, that's not to say he can't because he's still pretty young and, you know, who, who knows. But up until this point, I would say Allen has been the best, Ioannidis second and Payne third. But, you know, that's not a knock on Payne. I don't think he's a bad player. I think he's an above average starter with some, you know, pretty special flashes. That's how I would categorize him. We're talking Washington football team defensive line and offensive line play with Brandon Thorne, the author of the Trench Warfare newsletter. Chase Young, what did you think about his rookie season? What do you think we might see from him in his second season? Yeah, I mean, well, Chase Young, you know, we're talking about physical freak, you know, athletic gifts, physical traits. He's obviously kind of the poster child for that. Uh, You know, maybe the most physically gifted edge rusher in the NFL. And we got to see that last year. Um, a lot against the run as well. Uh, he's well-rounded, um, you know, very physical and, uh, you know, just has every tool you could want for a guy to develop into an elite player. Um, you know, I, I think he definitely has room to grow in terms of his pass rush packages and his repertoire as a pass rusher in terms of the moves that he can use. I don't really know that he has a, you know, a signature move, you know, right now, um, which is kind of funny because he came from Ohio State and coached by Bobby Johnson there. And, you know, Coach Johnson has kind of instilled the side scissors move into all the Ohio State pass rushers, and they all use it now. Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa, even Sam Hubbard, um, they all use that move. And I see it from Young as well, but I don't see it as cleanly as I do with the Bosa's. So if he can get that move and other moves, you know, refined to the point of like Nick and Joey Bosa, um, I mean, he's going to be straight up, you know, scary, dominant, crazy. Like, you know, I see him as kind of like the next, you know, he's, he's the closest thing to Miles Garrett. I think that there is in the NFL because Miles Garrett to me is like the most physically gifted guy in the league as in terms of edge rusher. And I think Chase Young is right there, but I, you know, he was very young last year, obviously. And there's, so um, again, I'm not knocking him, but if, if you're asking me to, you know, kind of point to things that I think he can improve on, I think it's really just as a, strictly as pass rusher and developing more, a more consistent move and then some counters off of it. Because right now I think he's winning more so than anything with effort, size, strength, power, and physicality, which, you know, he can still make an imprint on every game he plays in and, you know, be a factor. But I I think he has a lot of room to grow, which is kind of scary. But yeah, so I, I'm excited about him, obviously, but that's how I see him. So I, I don't think he was as clean coming in as Nick Bosa was like Nick, Nick Bosa to me as a rookie was better. Um, but young is more physically gifted. So I think that the ceiling is higher, but you know, we'll see how he looks in year two. No doubt, and certainly a lot of excitement regarding what Chase Young's second season ends up being. Another guy who is physically freakish, Montez Sweat. How high is his ceiling? I don't see it as high because I just his body type. He's a very um, you know he's taller uh, than Chase Young, and uh, I don't think he's going to be able to get around the corner 
as effectively or efficiently as Chase Young can and like a Miles Garrett, those kind of guys. Um, he's just a little bit more, I don't want to say stiff, uh, necessarily. It's just his body type isn't very conducive to being a guy who's going to win with speed off the edge. He's more so of a one dimensional pass rusher power, um, you know, using a long arm bull rush. Uh, that's how he, you know, affects the game as a pass rusher. And he really started to use that more effectively last year compared to as a rookie where kind of looked like he didn't know what he was doing. In my opinion, he was just, you know, a guy just playing football more so than playing the position of defensive end, you know, just an athlete playing football as opposed to, you know, a true, like, skilled football player. That Last year, I, saw, I thought we saw a jump in that with that long arm that he's able to use to, you know, kind of win the frame of blockers and, you know, create push in the pocket and things like that. And there's you know, he could be a very good player just, you know, winning with power, um, you know, so... Uh, I think he needs to continue to develop something off of that. You know, the long arm bull rush is a great move to have. Maybe a spin, maybe some sort of swipe or something that he needs to kind of incorporate in there to be, you know, harder to prepare for and and less um, predictable. But, you know, he's certainly, you know, arrow pointing up with him as well. He has a, you know, high athletic base in terms of his floor. So I think he's like a high floor guy because of how hard he plays as well, um, with maybe not an elite ceiling in my mind, but I think a very good player type ceiling. Um, you know, a great number two pass rusher. Uh, you know, like some something like that. That's how I kind of see him. So, you know, a great guy to have opposite Chase Young. With Washington's offensive line. A big topic the last two off-seasons now has been whether Brandon Sheriff is worthy of the big-money contract extension that he's seeking. He's a very good player. Nobody disputes that. But he's hurt a lot, and we have seen time and again that you can find quality guard play on the cheap. He wants top-of-the-market money. Should Washington give that to him? I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of Brandon Scherf. I mean, I, you know, going back to his Iowa days and just what he's done since he's been with Washington, uh, it's funny. It seems like, you know, maybe because of the contract situation and, you know, making the, the Pro Bowl, I think he made last year, stuff like that. You know, he's getting mo- more notoriety now. But I thought, you know, like, man, I remember watching 2016, 17, 18. I thought those years he was even better than he was last year. I know he, but that's the thing. Cause he, he's dealt with, like you said, injury last year, even though, you know, he, he played uh, the majority of the games. He certainly, you know, where he played 13 games last year, he was dealing with injury last year as well. Um, and I thought it, I thought that it kind of, you know, was starting to show some signs of maybe not as much power as he played with earlier in his career. Cause you go back to 2017, 2016, I thought he was on the path to becoming close, not Zach Martin, but you know, in that vicinity, um, just because of what he can do, uh, his, his power, his athletic ability, his ability to get out in space and do things at the second and third level pulling all that stuff was, was in my mind, special, his battles with Fletcher Cox over the years have been special. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of him, but I do have legit concerns about the wear and tear on his body, especially at this point, you know, he's six years in, um, you know, it's hard to believe that it's going to all of a sudden, you know, just get better. Um, you know, he hasn't started 16 games since 2016. 
you know, it's, I'm hesitant on the top of the market, you know, deal for him, even though I am a huge fan and, and think that he is really an elite player when healthy. I just don't know how much more time he has at that level at this point. So that's my concern with him. I think those concerns are valid and it's, it makes the contract, you know, negotiation that much more interesting because, you know, where do you lie? Where do you settle on that? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I would, I would have some reservations for sure. Giving him that, that top of the market deal um, at this point in his career, even though I think he is that caliber player when healthy. I think that is a very sober and accurate analysis of the sheriff situation. I think that makes a ton of sense. What are your thoughts on Washington's offensive tackle situation? The team, at least somewhat surprisingly, released Morgan Moses, appears to be going with Charles Leno Jr. at left tackle and either Samuel Cosme or Cornelius Lucas at right tackle. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's volatile. Uh, I'll say that. Um, you know, I, I haven't ranked all the offensive lines yet, looked at them in depth. I do that in August every year for establishing run. I'll, I'll rank all 32 offensive lines. So I've done that for three years now. I'll do that again. So I got to that point, you know, in the process of, of the offseason. But just based on the names you've told me, I watched Cosme coming out. I did a full evaluation on him coming out of Texas. It's going to be interesting to see uh, him, you know, if he's starting right away, because I thought, while obviously talented, you know, with the height, weight, uh, length, you know, raw athletic ability in terms of combine times, 40, you know, all those things, his bench, his vert, all that stuff was, you know, all what you want to see. That said, I think his technique needed some work. You know, I didn't necessarily see him as an instant, you know, impact starter. I saw him as a guy who maybe could start right away, but you're going to be taking some bumps with him, especially in pass protection, footwork, hand usage. I, I thought those things just needed some refinement. So, you know, to put him day one at a position, he did play right tackle in college, I believe, but not last year uh, or the year before. I think maybe three years ago he, he did, but yeah. I'm not 100%. Yeah, yeah. Right. so, um, you know, so there's going to be a little bit of a transition there as well. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it helps if he's playing right and he's playing next shirt, you know, that's, that, that, that'll help any young guy. Uh, but still, you know, I think the upside is there for him to, you know, become a very good player in time, but I don't see it necessarily in 2021. Uh, and Charles Leno is a guy who... You know, he, he's a middle-of-the-pack starter um, at best, and he's a guy who is undersized. Um, he's going to struggle against the bull rush, uh, but he's crafty. He's long, uh, you know, kind of unnaturally long for his size. It's 6'4", I believe. He has pretty long arms, so he does a nice job of, you know, getting his hands on guys first, and he, he has ways kind of around his lack of size and play strength. Um, so he, he's a really fun guy to study if you're into the nuances of the position, but there's just some clear weaknesses there. So there's a lot of variance and, and stuff you know going on with the tackle situation, especially without Moses now. And yeah, so you know I'm 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 probably a little down on the offensive line as a whole in terms of my projection when I do it. Uh, you know I would imagine just now without looking at all 32 that they're going to be in the bottom half um, of my projections, but. You know, you could win with a, you know, top 20, 25 offensive line if, if everything else is really good and the scheme's great and all that. So it's not saying it's a death sense for the team, but, you know, I'm, I'm 
you know, I have some, you know, quite a few concerns about the offensive line. I'll say that. All right. Well, as you can tell, Brandon Thorne knows his stuff. He puts in the time. He understands defensive line and offensive line play in the NFL like few others. If you want to be smarter when it comes to talking football, subscribe to the Trench Warfare newsletter. Follow Brandon on Twitter at Brandon Thorne NFL. Brandon, really enjoyed it, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. All right. Well, another win for the Nationals on Tuesday night. They now have won three straight and four of five. An 8-1 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park in game two of a three-game series. The Pirates are a bad team, and the Nats punked them on Tuesday night. And so, Davey Martinez, if you would. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir, Davey. Nats now 29-35, and including 17-17 and at home. Nats have trimmed their run differential on the season to minus 18. And while the Nats' bad offense put up eight runs on Tuesday night, the top item in the game to me was Patrick Corbin. If you're a starting pitcher and you can't have your way with the pathetic Pirates this season, then what's the point? You know, like, what exactly are we doing here if you can't dominate the old buckos who are putrid these days? Well, thankfully, there still is a point with Patrick Corbin. The Pirates now have the second worst record in the National League at 23 and 43, have the worst run differential in the NL at minus 98. They're terrible. And Corbin dominated them on Tuesday night. His best start of the season so far. One run in eight and a third innings on seven strikeouts versus eight hits, which were a double and seven singles, and a walk on 110 pitches. He had his slider working. He was great, all right? There are no two ways about this. Patrick Corbin, who has been so bad so far this season, was so good on Tuesday night. He needed this outing in the worst way. Corbin entered the game having allowed 18 runs in 26 innings on 32 hits and 12 walks over his last five starts. He entered the game with an ERA of 621 
and a whip of 151 over 12 starts this season. Corbin had been really bad this year. He was really good on Tuesday night. And I mentioned him throwing 110 pitches. Check this out. 76 of the 110 pitches were strikes. One of the biggest problems for Corbin this season has been throwing strikes. In his previous outing, which came in the 9-7-11 inning win at the Tampa Bay Rays on June 9th, he allowed three runs in five innings through just 50 strikes versus 43 balls. Corbin on Tuesday night, 76 strikes versus 34 balls. Better than a 2-to-1 ratio of strikes to balls. Awesome to see that. The only run he gave up was in the top of the seventh on a leadoff single by Gregory Polanco and a two-out first pitch RBI double by Phillip Evans. That was it. That's the Patrick Corbin we've been begging to see. That's the Patrick Corbin we saw in the Nationals' 2019 World Series winning season. That's the Patrick Corbin who compelled the Nats to give him a six-year, $140 million contract. Now, I am nowhere near ready to declare Patrick Corbin back. He's got to do this again and again and again before I say that Patrick Corbin is back to his 2019 self, especially when you consider the competition. Again, the Pirates are brutal, but it was nice to see Corbin pitch as he pitched on Tuesday night. Now, the Nats offense certainly held up its end of the bargain. The Nats scored eight runs, including five in the bottom of the first. So Corbin was handed an early lead and Corbin did as a pitcher should do when handed an early lead, work quickly, work effectively, throw strikes. But the Nats offense came through with that five-run bottom of the first, ultimately for the game, had 13 hits to go with two walks, went five for 10 with runners in scoring position. When it came to that five-run bottom of the first. No moment was better than the Jan Gomes Grand Slam. Jan Gomes smashing a one-out Grand Slam on a bomb to left field on a 1-2 pitch in that Nationals five-run first inning. The home run going a projected 400 feet per stat cast. Gomes also, by the way, had a leadoff full count walk in a Nationals two-run eighth despite having been down at the count at one point, one, two. Look, Jan Gomes for a while was doing quite well offensively. His numbers really have calmed down in recent weeks. His slash line for the season is only a 248 batting average, 287 on base percentage, 416 slugging percentage. But as catchers go, and there are so few good hitting catchers in the majors these days, Gomes isn't that bad. He certainly has been good defensively this season. He's been lights out when it comes to throwing out runners trying to steal, and to see him deliver that grand slam in the bottom of the first on Tuesday night, terrific. The Nats needed that. The Nats have been so bad this season with the bases loaded. Nats have been so bad this season in innings that are set up to be big innings, but the innings end up being small innings because the Nats don't come through with runners in scoring position. Well, Gomes did the best thing that you can do with runners in scoring position, hit a home run with the bases loaded. Also on Tuesday night, Trey Turner came through. A four-hit night for Trey Turner. So he's another guy whose numbers had been quite good, have really come back down to earth over these last few weeks. But Turner on Tuesday night, four for five with an RBI triple and three singles. He still hasn't homered in like forever, but he did at least have an RBI triple on Tuesday night. Turner had a single in the Nats five run first, a two out single in the bottom of the second, a two out RBI triple on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the fourth and a leadoff single in the bottom of the seventh. How about Jordy Mercer on Tuesday night? Jordy Mercer, of all people, had a three-hit night. The former Pirate was in that starting third baseman. No starting Castro on Tuesday night. That was interesting. And Mercer delivered three for four with three singles. He had a one-out single on a one-two pitch in the Nats five-run first, had a single in the Nats two-run eighth, and he had a leadoff single on a one-two pitch in the bottom of the sixth, just minutes 
after he made an outstanding defensive play, a diving backhanded stab of a grounder down the third baseline off the bat of Jacob Stallings and then throwing to first for the final out in the top of the sixth with a runner on first. That was a tremendous play. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that that's like a Brooks Robinson-esque type play that Mercer made, truth be told. You know, Mercer is actually a pretty good glove man. He has been wretched as a batter so far this season. But again, he did have three hits on Tuesday night, and he did make that awesome defensive play. Uh, did actually have a fielding error with one out in the top of the eighth inning, but that can be forgiven with the other things that Jordy Mercer ended up doing. Kyle Schwarber was, again, the Nats' leadoff batter on Tuesday night. We talked about that on Tuesday's installment of the podcast. Would that continue with the Pirates starting a lefty pitcher on Tuesday night? The answer is yes, it did. And while Schwarber did not have a monster game, he did not hit another home run, he did have a productive game. One for four with an RBI. Did strike out twice, but he had a leadoff single in that Nationals five-run first. Had a one-out RBI sack fly in the Nats' two-run eighth. And I thought Victor Robles had a good game on Tuesday night. One for three with an RBI double and a walk. He still has not homered this season, which is incredible. Victor Robles in the 2019 World Series winning season for the Nationals had 17 homers. He has zero homers so far this year. He has, though, piled up some doubles here lately. Had another one on Tuesday night, a full count RBI double in the Nationals two-run eighth inning. He also had a leadoff six-pitch walk in the Nats' one-run fourth despite having been down on the count at one point, one, two. And Robles made a sensational defensive play, a leaping catch of a first-pitch liner by Jacob Stallings while crashing into the center field wall for the first out in the top of the second inning. We've talked about Robles, how great he was defensively in 2019, was bad defensively last season, has bounced back to being very good defensively this season. Robles entered games on Tuesday, number three among all qualified center fielders in the majors in defensive runs saved at plus three. Number one, by the way, was the Kansas City Royals' Michael A. Taylor. Yes, the ex-Nat, who again this season is not good hitting, but again this season is great defensively, plus eight defensive run save for Michael Taylor entering games on Tuesday. But Robles had himself the double, had himself the walk, did ground into a bad double play, uh, inning-ending 1-4-3 double play that ended the Nats' five-run first. But again, Robles also with the standout defensive play. And it's funny when you look at the Nats offensively on Tuesday night, Nats had eight runs despite the numbers three and four batters really not doing much. Talking about Juan Soto and Ryan Zimmerman. Soto went one for four, left three men on base. He had a first pitch single in the Nats' five-run first. That was it. Zimmerman one for four with two strikeouts. He left four men on base, had a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the third, but he also struck out with the bases loaded and nobody out in the Nats' five-run first. That's also what was funny about the game. Jan Gomes delivers with the bases loaded in that five-run first with the grand slam, but it was earlier in that inning that Ryan Zimmerman had another Nationals fail with the bases loaded this season, striking out with the bases loaded and nobody out in that bottom of the first inning. Pirates are a bad team, like I said. There was a moment in the game that really captured this. Josh Harrison actually got the five-run first going in terms of the run scoring. He had what went down as a one-out first pitch opposite field RBI single uh, for the first run in the five-run first. But if you watch the game, the single was a result of the Pirates' right fielder, Gregory Polanco, failing in an attempted backhanded catch 
while running toward the right field line. I'm not sure that should have been an error necessarily, but that is a play you'd like for your right fielder to make. Polanco did not make it, and Harrison ended up getting credit uh, for a single. Again, the Pirates are brutal. Uh, The Nats, because Patrick Corbin was so good, barely had to use their bullpen. Justin Miller was the only reliever used by the Nats. He faced two batters, got the final two outs of the game. Justin Miller, yes, is back with the Nationals. His contract was selected from AAA Rochester on Tuesday. The Nats signed Justin Miller to a minor league deal during spring training. He had last pitched in the majors for the Nats in the 2018 and 2019 seasons. He did not pitch at the major league level in the 2020 season. And the reason that Miller's contract was selected from AAA Rochester on Tuesday is that that was the corresponding roster move to the Nats placing Max Scherzer on the 10-day injured list. Yes, Max was put on the IL on Tuesday. Retroactive to June 12th, groin inflammation ends up being the official labeling of the injury that Max Scherzer is dealing with. So if you recall, Max left his last outing, which came in that one nothing loss to the San Francisco Giants in Nationals Park this past Friday night after recording just one out and throwing just 12 pitches due to a groin tweak. He cut short a bullpen session on Monday. Do the groin still bothering him? We weren't sure that the Nats were going to put him on the IL. Well, the Nats did put him on the IL on Tuesday. Now, the Nats were able to backdate it to June 12th, so it may well be that he only misses a start, but he is missing a start. He is not making a scheduled start on Wednesday for Game 3 against the Pirates, 4.05 in the afternoon. The Nats are starting Paolo Espino in what will more or less be a bullpen game, although the idea isn't necessarily for Paolo to only pitch an inning or two. Maybe he goes three or four. Uh, Espino has been very good in a bunch of low leverage situations for the Nationals so far this season. He is the player of the pod on the Nats Chat podcast that I do with Mark Zuckerman, in part because I love his name so much. Paolo Espino, it screams journeyman. He certainly looks the part of a journeyman, but he's not pitched like a journeyman so far this year. He's actually pitched very well. Uh, Espino will be opposing Chase DeYoung, who has thrown just 15 major league innings this season and just 69 and the third career major league innings. He has a career ERA of 662. Again, the Pirates are not good. This is another game that the Nationals should be able to win. And this is another game in which the Nationals offense should be able to do some things. And, you know, because the bullpen was barely used on Tuesday night, and also because the Nats have an off day on Thursday, you got some flexibility here with this being essentially a bullpen game on Wednesday afternoon. So Espino will start it, and hopefully he does well and goes, say, three, four innings. Uh, We do know that Jeffrey Rodriguez will be available to pitch. So maybe between those two, you can cover six, maybe even seven innings, and then use, you know, a Brad Hand, a Tanner Rainey, that sort of a thing, and you'll be in good shape. Now, while we're talking pitching, massive news in Major League Baseball on Tuesday. MLB putting out a press release that truly addresses what has become a major topic. Pitchers using foreign substances on baseballs. First of all, MLB in the press release admitted that there's a big problem. We had not necessarily had that up until this point. MLB in the press release said that, quote, the existing on-field enforcement process has not deterred an increasing number of violations, end quote. MLB in the press release also said that, quote, based on the information collected over the first two months of the season, including numerous complaints from position players, pitchers, umpires, coaches, and executives, there is a prevalence of foreign substance use by pitchers in Major League Baseball and throughout the minor leagues. 
Many baseballs collected have had dark, amber-colored markings that are sticky to the touch. MLB recently completed extensive testing, including testing by third-party researchers to determine whether the use of foreign substances has a material impact on performance. That research concluded that foreign substances significantly increase the spin rate and movement of the baseball, providing pitchers who use these substances with an unfair competitive advantage over hitters and pitchers who do not use foreign substances and results in less action on the field. In addition, the foreign substance use appears to contribute to a style of pitching in which pitchers sacrifice location in favor of spin and velocity, particularly with respect to elevated fastballs, end quote. Now, what was also interesting about this press release is that MLB pushed back on this notion that's been out there of, well, you have to allow these pitchers to use these foreign substances because otherwise pitchers will be throwing baseballs all over the place and it'll become unsafe for the batters. Not true, said MLB in the press release. Quote, the evidence does not suggest a correlation between improved hitter safety and the use of foreign substances. In fact, the hit-by-pitch ratio has increased along with the prevalence of foreign substance use. Through May 31st, the 2021 season has the highest rate of hit-by-pitches of any season in the past 100 years, end quote. And so MLB in this press release outlined a crackdown. And understand, this is in the middle of the season that MLB is doing this. A fundamental change to the way things are done for pitchers is taking place mid-season this season in Major League Baseball. MLB said that beginning with games on June 21st, quote, enhanced enforcement of official baseball rules 3.01 and 6.02 C and D, which prohibit applying foreign substances to baseballs, end quote, will go into effect. And I won't bore you with every little aspect of what's about to be further enforced. I will just tell you that things are going to change in terms of what umpires are going to be doing. Umpires are going to be performing checks periodically throughout games of all starting and relief pitchers on both teams, regardless of whether rules violations are suspected. Each starting pitcher is about to have more than one mandatory check per game, and each relief pitcher is about to be checked either at the conclusion of the inning in which he enters the game or when he is removed from the game, whichever occurs first. Checks are to include checks of a pitcher's hat, glove, and fingertips. Umpires will be able to perform checks at any time in games when the umpires feel the checks are warranted and players will be immediately ejected from games and suspended if found to possess or have applied foreign substances in violation of the playing rules. So a few thoughts. Number one, this was necessary, okay? Offense in Major League Baseball this season is way down. That's not good for business. It's not entertaining. And the widespread belief is that the increased and widespread usage of these foreign substances is a big part of why offense is so down. So MLB had to do something about this. In addition to the usage of these foreign substances isn't legal. This is cheating. So I totally get why MLB is wanting to crack down on this. I actually applaud MLB for cracking down on this. I do think, though, that this is going to be chaos, okay? Because this is being implemented in season, 
you already are seeing a ton of pushback from the players who, as we all know, love to push back on everything. The relationship right now between Major League Baseball and the Players Association is maybe at an all-time low. And the fact that MLB is just shoving this down the players' throats, again, mid-season, says a lot and is not being well-received by the players. So I think you could have all sorts of issues with this to say nothing of the complicated nature of all of this. I mean, so umpires throughout games now are going to be checking pitchers, frisking pitchers. I mean, umpires who already have difficult jobs are now supposed to be cops and chemists and trying to figure out, okay, what is this substance? You know, to what degree is this substance illegal? What are we looking at here? What do you have here? Is that sweat or is that a lotion? You know, is that your perspiration or is that Vaseline? Like, what exactly are we uh, touching here right now on you? Like, you don't think that that's going to be dicey? And I just laugh at all this because MLB is always like this. MLB is always so reactive as opposed to proactive. The thing that really got all this foreign substance stuff going was a Sports Illustrated article that came out a few weeks ago. Why is it always a Sports Illustrated article that ignites change in MLB? You know, it feels like it's an, it's an article from SI or from The Athletic that causes change in Major League Baseball. It's never Major League Baseball itself. MLB is always a step behind things. We saw this with the performance-enhancing drugs. We saw this with the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal. We have seen this with the pace of play and time of game problems. We have seen this with the mistreatment of women in MLB. And now we see this with this foreign substance problem. It's never that MLB gets its arms around a problem before the problem truly becomes a problem. It's always that the problem becomes a big deal. MLB's looking the other way on it for years. And then somebody writes about it and, oh yeah, I guess we should do something. And MLB rushes to do something. And that's the thing. This foreign substance problem has been an open secret in Major League Baseball for years. This didn't come out of nowhere, all right? April 2014, Michael Pineda was suspended by MLB for 10 games for literally having pine tar smeared on the right side of his neck during a start for the New York Yankees at the Boston Red Sox. Everyone knew what Pineda was doing. He got suspended, and then the issue just went bye-bye. April 2017, a baseball literally stuck to the chest protector of St. Louis Cardinals catcher Yadier Molina in a game against the Chicago Cubs. Now, ask yourself this. How the heck does a baseball stick to a catcher's chest protector, okay? What is this, some miracle of science? Some miracle of physics? Or maybe just maybe, was there something on the baseball that caused it to stick to the chest protector of Yadier Molina? You can find that, by the way, on YouTube. It's hysterical to see. But it happened, and then it just kind of went bye-bye, and nobody wanted to talk about it. Why did that happen? How did that happen? So get your popcorn ready, people, because if you're a baseball fan, these games are about to get a whole lot more entertaining with who's using what, what umpires are finding. Uh, These games are about to get a whole lot longer, too, as if baseball games aren't long enough. There's no way that these checks are going to happen quickly and efficiently, at least not from the get-go. Again, I get MLB wanting to crack down on this. I applaud MLB for cracking down on this. But doing this in the middle of the season, uh, I just think, is filled with potential pitfalls. Also, know this. Max Scherzer has been implicated in all of this. There was an article that came out on SI.com on Monday. The article was centered on former clubhouse manager Brian Bubba Harkins. He named Max Scherzer among the many recipients of Bubba's, quote, home-cooked mixture 
of liquid pine tar, solid pine tar, often called modestick, and rosin, end quote. Harkins was fired in 2020 by the Los Angeles Angels as the visiting clubhouse manager at Anaheim Stadium for distributing his mixture. But this is now a thing of who has used and to what extent is it truly illegal that these guys have used? You know, this has been called the new PEDs, these illegal foreign substances. So here you have a guy in Max Scherzer, right? All-time great pitcher, future Hall of Famer. Are we now to look at his career differently? Is this the kind of thing where you say, well, you know, everyone was doing it? Well, was everyone doing it? Was it maybe some people were doing it, but some people weren't doing it? I mean, remember, we dealt with that when it came to the PEDs. So a whole nother Pandora's box has been opened up about how to view greats in baseball. And here we go again. We went through this with the PED stuff, and it feels like we may be about to go through this now uh, with pitchers. But how about that with Scherzer? You know, Scherzer got asked about this. He refused to answer questions about this due to an ongoing lawsuit involving this guy, Brian Bubba Harkins. But at some point, Max is going to have to answer some questions about this, and that could get tricky for him. We'll see. We'll see what he has to say. One more Nats item, the Cade Cavalli promotion is official. Uh, We on Monday had multiple reports that the Nats were promoting starting pitcher Cade Cavalli and lefty reliever Matt Cronin from the high-A Wilmington Blue Rocks to the double-A Harrisburg Senators. The promotions did become official on Tuesday. Cavalli is the Nats' number one prospect. He is one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. Nats took him with the number 22 pick in the 2020 MLB draft out of the University of Oklahoma. He was outstanding at high A Wilmington. Seven starts, 40 and two-thirds innings, a 177 ERA, a 0.885 whip, 71 strikeouts versus 12 walks, 15.7 strikeouts per nine innings. And I will say what I said on the last installment of this podcast. Cavalli is already at double A. Do not be stunned if we see him at the major league level at some point this season. So I asked the question very late in Tuesday's installment of the podcast, who would be better on Tuesday night, Patrick Corbin or Matt Harvey? Each guy previously very good, each guy struggling mightily these days, each guy starting on Tuesday night. Well, Corbin was great, Harvey was not, and the Orioles lost another road game. They now have lost a franchise record 17 consecutive road games. The Orioles' last road win was the John Means no-hitter at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. A 7-2 loss at the Cleveland Indians on Tuesday night. O's now an American League worst 22-44 and with an AO worst run differential of minus 74 as, yes, Matt Harvey struggled again. Struggled for a sixth time in seven starts. He allowed six runs, five earned, in three and a third innings. He gave up six hits, a double and five singles. He issued two walks. He had just two strikeouts. He threw 82 pitches over his three and a third innings. Now, to be fair to Harvey, there actually was an element of bad luck in all this. It wasn't like he just got shellacked throughout his outing on Tuesday night. He allowed an unearned run over the first three innings. That was it. Just one run, and it was unearned over the first three innings. He then got charged with five runs 
in the bottom of the fourth. But there's some context to this. So he did give up a double three singles and a walk. It's not like he was some sweet, innocent angel when it came to the five runs scored by the Indians in the bottom of the fourth. But two of the runs charged to him came on a two-out first pitch RBI double by Eddie Rosario off Orioles reliever Cole Solcer. So Solcer allowed the inherited runners to score. Harvey got charged with those runners scoring. Also, the Orioles' defense on Tuesday night was atrocious. The O's finished the game with four errors, and even that doesn't tell the entirety of the story because you had something like nobody apparently backing up Trey Mancini as the cutoff man on Cedric Mullins throwing error in the Indians' five-run fourth inning. Yes, occasionally Cedric Mullins does make mistakes. He certainly doesn't do so often, but he did have a throwing error on Tuesday night. And as best as we could tell watching the game, nobody backed up the cutoff man in that spot, or at least the guy who was supposed to serve as a cutoff man, Trey Mancini. So something like that doesn't go down as an error, but it compounded the error that was committed by Cedric Mullins. So some real sloppiness by the Orioles on Tuesday night. The O's certainly did not help out Matt Harvey much, but Matt Harvey himself is still not in a good place. He now has allowed 36 earned runs in 23 innings over his last seven starts. I mean, think about that. 36 earned runs in 23 innings over his last seven starts. This off him having had an ERA of 360 over his first seven starts of the season. His ERA now for the season is 776. His whip for the season now is 172. I just don't see what the point is anymore with Matt Harvey. If you can't fix him, you can't flip him. If you can't flip him, then there's no point in having him. He is not a building block for the future. The Orioles are a tanking and rebuilding team. What is the point at this point with Matt Harvey and his 776 ERA over 14 starts? Brandon Hyde has stuck by Matt Harvey. None of this is personal with Matt Harvey. He's actually been a class act through all of his struggles. He has crushed himself in his post-game press conferences. Like, he's not pointing the finger of blame at anybody but himself. It's really sad what has happened with Matt Harvey because he was one of the bright young stars of Major League Baseball not that long ago, you know, 2013, 2015, that sort of thing. And since 2016, his career has gone straight down the tubes, largely due to health. He dealt with thoracic outlet syndrome, has never been the same. Like I said, on Tuesday night, it wasn't all him. The Orioles' defense left a lot to be desired. The Orioles' defense was Wizards-like on Tuesday night, okay? But still, Matt Harvey has an ERA of 776, okay? There's only so much of this we can write off to, well, the Orioles didn't help out the guy enough. No, he's got an ERA approaching eight, and not over like one or two starts, over 14 starts on the year. Game three at the Indians, Wednesday night at 7-10. Keegan Aiken will get the start for the O's. He'll be opposing Aaron Savali, who's actually been very good for Cleveland this season, an ERA of 317 over 13 starts. Aiken is coming off a disappointing outing. 4-2 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays this past Friday night. Three runs in four innings on five hits, a homer and four singles, three walks and a wild pitch versus two strikeouts on 95 pitches. But he had been good in each of his first two major league starts of the season. This will be start number four. We'll see what he provides. It can't be much worse, though, than what's been happening with Matt Harvey. Aiken is a young building block. Harvey is not. You're willing to ride out Aiken struggles. With Harvey, there's just no point.
All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Much more on the Washington football team on Thursday's installment of the podcast. I'll also discuss the Nationals' attempt at a three-game sweep of the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park and the Orioles' attempt to actually win a road game. The franchise record losing streak now at 17 games Game three at the Cleveland Indians on Wednesday night. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. Who is your daddy and what does he do? The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not ready hour foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.